Okay, pull out your phone, download the Kahoot app if you haven't done that already. Um, that's what it looks like, or it should be helping you out. Many of you are already there. Once you download that app in a few moments, on the screen you will see a PIN number. You will enter into that PIN number, and then you'll put in your name, your gamer tag, whatever you want to go by. Ah, Jordan McClellan, is he here? Can somebody get Jordan McClellan to come inside, please? I forgot something. And uh, while we're just waiting for you to do that and uh, uh, your gamer tag, and we'll be playing in just a moment, I do need to bring up uh, uh, that uh, your charitable donation receipts have been sent out on Friday. Uh, I need three of the gift cards. Thank you. Sorry. Um, oh, yeah. There's, oh, there's right and wrong answers here. It's there. It's going to happen. Somebody's walking away with a gift card. So your charitable receipts were sent out on Friday. Some of you have what is known as a junk mail folder. You need to check your junk mail folder because the receipts themselves, uh, only 51% of them have been opened and downloaded. So please make sure that you look under Planning Center, Subject Line 2018 Annual Statement, and uh, your receipts are in there. Please do that as soon as possible. Um, if you have any questions, if you have any concerns, if the numbers aren't adding up in your mind, then, uh, well, the first thing you can do is see Allison at the welcome desk today after the gathering. And uh, if not, you can just contact the office and we can get into it for you. So uh, we try to make it as easy as possible, and this is just one of the ways that we can do it. Thank you, sir. Sorry, I didn't give you the heads up on that. That's my bad. So... People are still pulling in. That's good. And so if you're our guest today, so we, we'd like to walk through the book of the Bible and break things up a little bit. And today uh, we have stepped away from God uh, in the movies. And now for the next month, we're back into the book of Matthew. I'm glad you're entertained with names that are going on the screen. Like, <laughs> and uh, we're looking at Matthew chapter 19. And this is the second time... As we walk through the book of Matthew, that Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees regarding the topic of divorce. And uh, today, I just want us to uh, pause and um, play the game of Kahoot. And so as we're uploading, we'll just wait a few more moments. It seemed to have slowed down. Oh, it's picking up again. Is everybody in? Not quite. All right. Because I think uh, today, actually, the game is really more for me than maybe it is for you. So, <laughs> Yeah, normally if you try to put something nasty in there, it corrects it for you. So if what you think is your gamer tag, that you tried to be nasty, no. Thanos, really. Okay. Are we in? No. Waiting a few more moments. Are we in yet? Everybody in? There's no nay-nay here. So. Some of you are very creative. I, I, I really have to give you that. <laughs> okay, we good? Okay, let's get busy. What's the first one? It's all about divorce. Ten simple questions. First one is, what is the percent of Canadians who will get divorced before the 30th anniversary? Is it 26 to 29, 38 to 41, 48 to 51, or 52 to 55? What is the percent of Canadians who will get divorced before the 30th anniversary? I'm going to give you a few moments. Some of these have 10 seconds. Some of them have 20 seconds. So, The answer is 38 to 41. Only 21%. Okay, let's move on to the next question. Next question. Okay, double X or double square, I should say. There. Okay, next question. Which province has the highest divorce rate? Okay, you should know this. Is it BC, Manitoba, Ontario, or Quebec? Hmm. 
Answers are coming in fast and furious. The answer is Quebec. Oh, so some of you guys are failing Canadian culture pretty bad. All right. Kira has jumped to the front. There we go. That's your sister. You're not getting the Starbucks card if she wins. I just want you to know that. Okay, next one. Which province has the lowest uh, divorce rate? Alberta, Saskatoon, and New Brunswick, and Newfoundland, and Labrador. Who is it? Who is it? The answer is Newfoundland and Labrador. Yeah, all you Ryder fans, get out of here. All right, Mama Bear's jumped to the top. Next one. Length of the average marriage in Canada is how many years? Ooh, is it 13.7, 15.2, 23.8, or 29.1? Length of the average marriage in Canada. Number one, 13.7. Isn't that interesting? Okay, next one. Who's who's jumped in front here? Mama Bear is still holding it. All right. Okay, what gender are you? (laughs) I was going to put other, but I thought, well, I'm going to do this one. Okay, so this is about an average reflection of our our society, 51% female, okay. Mama Bear jumps. Next. How old are you? 1 to 19, 20 to 35, 35 to 50, or 51 plus? Okay, 20 to 35. Oh, you're too quick, guys. 20 to 35 was a high one. Okay, let's next one. Has someone in your immediate family been divorced? Be it your parents, brothers, sister, grandchildren. Yes or no? Let's be careful. Don't hit too fast. Take your time there, boys. Take your time. Isn't that interesting? That's not what I expected. Okay, next. Mama Bear still holding the lead. Have you ever been married? Yes, no, never, thought of it, but no. (laughs) There we go, 61%. Okay, so that's that's pretty interesting. None under never, wow. Okay, next. Mama Bear still holding it. If you've been married, have you been divorced? Yes, no, never been married. So if you've been, so 66%, 22%, no, 8, yes. Okay, next question. If you're married, are you married to somebody who has been divorced? Yes, no, never been married. <sighs> 64, 3 say yes, 29, never been married. Okay. And then next is Mama Bear. Who's Mama Bear? There's Mama Bear in the back. Congratulations, Mama Bear. There's a gift card for you. (laughs) Interesting reflection of our community, don't you think? Now... Judging by our answers today, uh, there's a room full of people here that know something about divorce and how it affects relationships. And um, I would also say about the deep, kind of deep pain, the damage that can come from a marriage that doesn't end well. And I would honestly say that many in this room also know that divorce just doesn't impact the husband and wife. The consequences ripple throughout an entire family. Today I want to teach you. I'm not going to be preaching. I'm going to be teaching. I want to teach the passage of Scripture. Um, And as divorce becomes more prevalent and more expected in our society, there's a greater acceptance of it. In fact, for children growing up today, it's becoming uncommon to live together with both your own mother and your own father. 
This is Canada we're talking about. Now, despite its popularity, and we hear it on the news, we hear it being advertised, divorce, divorce is incredibly destructive and hurtful. There are no easy solutions. There have been numerous studies of the detrimental effect divorce has on children and their sense of stability, the confidence, self-value. And divorce not only brings out a profound personal emotional pain from rejection, but it also leads uh, to a deep-seated anger in some people, resentment, bitterness, and sometimes even violence. That's our culture. This is, this is something that's a part of our culture. Now, I think again, before we talk about the idea of divorce, I think we have to remember the idea behind marriage. And what is the idea behind marriage? Because in marriage, it, it, we live in this dark world and a world that at times appears to be dead. And when you think about it, we have these two people who, for whatever reason, love each other. They fall in love and they have this passion and this devotion. And these are the, they, they want to come together and we have these things called weddings, these celebrations. And now what happens is that they come together and they bring light to a dark world. This is what marriage is all about. And this is why many people actually love weddings, and they cry at weddings. This is why even tough guys get teared up and, and get tears in their eyes when they look at their bride and see her coming down the aisles, and, and the, their lips are just quivering, and the tears are coming, and some have Kleenex, and it's just beautiful. And it doesn't matter how strong, it doesn't matter how tough you are, right, or, or you think you are, when you see your beauty, and she's coming, and she is, is, is looking at you, and she's beaming He's the one on fire, I have to put that. But she floats down on the aisle, right? And the reason we're so moved in the world, because our world sometimes is so dark, and a wedding brings light. In a world that sometimes be, seems so dead, the wedding, it brings life. And the kids, and the attendants, and the flowers, and everything else. And the, there's this idea that, that there is love their love for each other will eventually flow over and spill and leak into the rest of us. That's marriage. Unfortunately, we're talking about divorce. <coughs> Excuse me. Divorce affects a lot of people in our community. And many in the church have been through it themselves. Some are in the midst of a divorce right now. We see your prayer requests. We get your messages, we meet with you over coffee. And many people know about divorce from a very different angle, maybe growing up with two homes, one for mom, one for dad. And sadly, many Christians talk about divorce as it's the unforgivable sin. And many Christians, uh, you know, uh, have felt that once you've crossed that line, you have crossed it and you can never really recover from it. And many divorced people have been told and actually believe that their divorce means condemnation. At least this is what has happened in the culture I, used to, uh, I grew up in. Some people who have been divorced have uh, felt that maybe God has given up on them, almost as if they were wearing a scarlet D. You tracking with me? That demonstrates that, you know, to God and to the world that you are a divorcee, that you are a second-class Christian. I think I, I feel the need to be abundantly clear on this and that divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Just throwing it out there. Unfortunately, some churches have really not helped matters much. Not only is the divorce rate uh, just as high among church attenders, but many churches have also served up generous helpings of guilt-inducing accusations and rejection. And as a church, you know, we tend to showcase the ideal of marriage as God intended it to be. And people who have been divorced are often made, like I said, to feel like second-class citizens. Sometimes purposely, sometimes not. Some churches have taught very rigid, even unusual interpretations of the Bible that prevent anybody who has been divorced from remarriage. And sometimes there are very godly, competent, otherwise qualified believers who have actually been barred for life from ministry and church leadership positions because they have been divorced or even because they are, they've married somebody who is divorced. And this is all done in the name of Jesus. So today we're studying Matthew chapter 19 where Jesus talks about his view of divorce. Very clear. 
The study is complicated by the fact that there are difficult expressions and ideas in the passage. That's why I felt it very important that we go into a teaching mode today. There are many other passages to correlate, and we just don't have the time to do all the correlation, but they're there. Uh, there is no chapter in the Bible that is a complete treatise on the subject of divorce. We need to be careful not to simply take one passage that may say what we want it to say on the whole subject and make it the total teaching. You can't do that. There has to be a correlation with other passages to, to harmonize the material. Unfortunately, I don't have all the time in the world to do that, but I hope to give you an overview. If you go back, we actually looked at the first time that Jesus brought up this issue in Matthew um, chapter 5. And so that is on the podcast, and you can go back and find that there. But now, in this passage, Jesus gives us several truths that lie behind all the teachings on marriage and divorce, which actually makes it so fundamental. And this chapter introduces two essential points to keep in mind. The ideal and the practical. Which is really important when it comes to living out our faith. The ideal is simply what God intended from the beginning. What God intended from creation. One man, one woman united for their whole life to hopefully produce godly seed. But there's also the practical. The practical meaning people do break up. They break up their marriages and they remarry. They marry again. So how do we respond to this and how do we deal with this in the life of the church? Because when we get married, nobody gets up in front of the altar thinking, unless you're a gold digger, you know, nobody gets married with the idea of I'm going to end this in a divorce. No, we make a commitment. We stand there and we say, until death do us part. But sometimes that doesn't happen. And so how do we respond to this and how do we deal with it in the life of the church as believers? The fact that divorce was permitted, when we look at both the Old and the New Testaments, we see that. That uh, it indicates that people fail to, to live up to the revealed word of God. And the permitting of divorce did not in any way bring the approval and the blessing of God. In other words, God doesn't bless and approve divorce. Now, I may some, say some very strong things today that may offend you, it may confront you, it may cause up certain emotions in you, to which I ask that you sit and you remain until the end. Getting out and storming out doesn't solve anything. How's that for a disclaimer? Those whose marriages failed have to find spiritual restoration and healing before they can move forward in their walk with God. It would be foolish for anybody, when you think about it, to enter into a second marriage without trying to sort out and to deal with what wrong in the first. And so we pick it up, and you heard this already, and we're going to read it again. Jesus had finished saying these things. He left Galilee. He went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them. So that's just a, one little part. The next line says, Some Pharisees came to him to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason, for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to the his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. And the disciples say to him, so now the disciples chime in on this. This is great, because you have, you have the, the, the Pharisees doing their things, and of course the, the disciples are there, and they have to put their own two bits in, and they say, well, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Do you hear what they're saying here? And Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. 
oh, this is going to be a fun topic to talk about. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. Now, Matthew begins with the idea that Jesus and his enemies are poles apart. They are actually on this collision course when we look at it. You know, the religious leaders, they're wanting to get rid of Jesus, and Jesus knowing that he is coming to die at their hands. But in his teachings, what we see as we follow Jesus, he's constantly bringing mercy and grace. He's bringing promise. He's bringing hope to those who believe in him as Messiah. And those who reject him as Messiah are only going to be looking forward to judgment. And so the the passage that we just read is actually arranged into three questions. And there's no miracle in the passage. There's no mighty work that Jesus does to authenticate his his claims. Um, There was miracles previously, but nothing in this passage. However, what he does is he begins to teach with authority. And he, he shows how very different the kingdom of heaven is compared to the earthly realms. And this passage then is actually a teaching passage. And on the whole, the teaching about the ideal of marriage is not hard for us to understand. We get it. There's this ideal to marriage. It's the plan of creation. And as some have have observed, if everybody lived right, the ideal, there would be no questions of interpretation regarding divorce. If we all did our part, if we all lived right, if we all loved, if we were all transparent, if we were all honest, you hear what I'm tracking? That's the ideal. There are two Old Testament passages that are referred to in this passage. The first is the, the creation of Adam and Eve. The second is, is Moses' ruling on divorce. So Jesus obviously knows the scriptures. You know who, who he is talking to, and he actually challenges them by asking them questions regarding the scriptures. Now the first passage, the first section of the passage records his answer to the Pharisees about, about divorce. And the question is, you know, is it lawful to divorce for any and every reason? Any and every reason. So the question comes from the Pharisees as a test. They're testing him again. And it's no surprise because they're, they're seen throughout the entire book as constantly challenging Jesus. And we have to remember that the, the Pharisees were devout religious people who sought to guide others, other people, in obedience to the law of Moses. They had good intentions. They believed in the elements of the, their historical faith but they were also incredibly legalistic and also hypocritical as well. They were deeply troubled by Jesus at first, but then many of them became hardened against Jesus, and they wanted to destroy him. And so not all the Pharisees were this way, because some actually followed him, but apparently those who had power were. Jesus was a threat, we've got to get rid of him. So, They raise the age-old question on divorce. Now, we need to know the background to what's happening in this thing. They're trying to test him. Again, they brought it up before. They bring it up again. They want to see how he's going to answer the question. They want to see if he's going to say something that would ruin his reputation before the people, um, you know, maybe he's going to contradict Moses or, or do something even worse. And so they hope Jesus is going to lose favor and popularity with the people if they can just ask the right question and get him to screw up. Now, The question is about the legality of divorce in general. But it's worded to reflect the current debate that was going on during the lifetime of Jesus. Now the phrase for every and any reason actually refers to a major debate in Judaism over divorce. So they're having this struggle, this talk, in their theological circles back then between their famous teachers. Two guys, one by the name of Hillel, the other guy by the name of Shammai. So these two guys, two brilliant minds are having their theological viewpoints uh, being looked at. And both of these schools of thought permitted divorce. Uh, But for different reasons. And both based their teachings on the same verse of the Bible. You're tracking with me on this. It goes back to Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. That ruled that divorce was permissible for some unseemingly thing. Or literally, the nakedness of a thing. Now, Shammai and his students emphasized that first word. They focused on the word nakedness and said that divorce was only, could only be permissible if something indecent happened. They didn't agree on what that term 
you know, indecency might be because that word nakedness was actually a very broad term um, and can figuratively mean, you know, many different things. It probably meant some sort of profane or lewd conduct or lifestyle that was ruining the marriage, something possibly sexual that was actually ruining the marriage. So one party was doing something wrong. Are you tracking with me on this? Okay. Now, on the other hand, you have Hillel. Now, Hillel is interesting because him and his followers, they take a more lenient view uh, of the reason of divorce. They for- focused on the word thing and, and said divorce would be granted for almost anything. And so they had limits. But they allowed divorce for a number of reasons. Hillel uh, said that one could divorce his wife for spoiling a dish. If she burnt dinner, that, that could happen. Literally. And uh, said so that, you, you know, again, you spoil the meal, you're done. And so... The question was uh, the question was really one that the Pharisees had been debating for some time. There was no real resolution, and they decided it was actually a good question to use to test Jesus. So even amongst their own ranks, they're not agreeing, and so they're trying to see what Jesus says. Now, Jesus' answer doesn't line up with the loose interpretation of Hillel, and it doesn't line up with the more strict interpretation of Shammai, but Jesus did restrict divorce to what is what we call sexual misconduct. So Jesus refers to scripture to make his case, as did the prophet Malachi before him. And Jesus quotes Genesis 1.7.17 to affirm that God made male and female with the implication that they would be joined together. And then he quotes Genesis 2 and reminds everybody that there would be one flesh. Now it's interesting, the word flesh there in the Old Testament passage doesn't just mean a sexual union. It's more than that. It's much more than that. It's the union of their lives. It's their hopes coming together. It's their dreams coming together. It's their ambitions, their plan, and yes, their sexual activity. But it's the mingling together. And they would become one in absolutely every sense. And to destroy that ruined more than just the sexual union. And so in every marriage, the unity of a man and a woman is a reenactment of the design of God for creation that goes all the way back to Genesis. This is why it's so important. And Jesus draws uh, the conclusion that from this, that if God joined, now look at, look at this, if God joined the two together, think about what I just said. If God joined the two together, they are one by God's will. So divorce then goes contrary to the design of the creator and is to be considered the sin of rebellion because it tears apart what God was putting together. Do you see, do you see what's being said here? Now according to Jesus, marriage is sacred because God ordained the unity of a couple, the man and the woman, as one flesh. And second, because marriage is grounded in creation, it cannot be defined merely in the terms of the marriage agreement between a man and a woman and whatever agreement or covenant that they make. It's more sacred than that. And what this passage teaches is that we need to recognize marriage for what it is. It's the plan of the creator to unite a man and a woman together as one flesh, right? Mingling. And therefore we have to recognize then what divorce is And it's either rebellion or failure to fulfill the will of God. Not at violation of the agreement that two humans made. But something else. Which becomes problematic. Which then begins to lead us to ask a whole lot of questions. The Pharisees come back to Jesus after he explains that. And they give a follow-up question. If divorce is a violation of the will of the creator, then why did... Moses command that a man give his wife a bill of divorce and send her away. Well, how come Moses let it happen? Now, a careful reading of Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 shows that Moses didn't command them to divorce. He allowed it for some indecent thing. 
Moses actually ruled that if a man married and the woman did not find favor in his sight and he divorced her and her second husband did the same thing, she could not return to the first husband. That's what he was saying. So in the discussion in Deuteronomy, divorce and remarriage are presupposed for the, the ruling about marrying the first husband again. That's what the context is. In other words, divorce and remarriage were allowed but not commanded. Moses allowed it. People would seek ways to restore their marriage, but if it didn't work, then there was permission to divorce. Matthew presents this very clear teaching of Jesus that divorce did not reflect the true plan of creation, but really it reflects the hardness of the human heart. How many of us know the human heart is hard? Yeah, even in our own relationships with one another, our human heart can be very hard. Moses prevents divorce because it, pref- it was preferred over sinful indecency. In other words, you know, people running wild. And the fact that divorce was granted did not s- specify that one divorcing the guilty partner was committing a sin. But rather it was evidence that there was already sin had taken place and it was destroying this marriage, this thing that God had brought together. So divorce was not and is not a God-ordained, morally neutral option. And I hate to say it this way, but this is how the scriptures present it. This is called the tough sayings of Jesus. It's evidence of sin and hardness of heart. The refusal to obey. So what's the reason for dissolving a marriage? Well... Jesus summarizes the law with what is called the exception clause, except for marital unfaithfulness. He uses, the word that he uses is uh, the Greek word, no, I've talked about it numerous times, pernia. It's usually translated fornication. The term is used for all types of sexual acts outside the bonds of marriage. And so Jesus is making the ruling of Moses actually more specific. And he agrees with Moses that divorce is permitted because of the hardness of heart. You hear what I'm saying? But he affirms that it may not only be granted on the, but it can only be granted on the grounds of sexual sins. And since sexual unity in marriage was the plan of, and is the plan of the Creator, then sexual promiscuity, promiscuity, the word is, thank you, is not in harmony with it, and it it may not necessarily. Uh, necessitate divorce, depending on you know, whether or not a, a couple can actually work out their problems. But per- permission for divorce under such circumstances was in harmony with the will of the Creator, according to Jesus. Somebody screws around in the marriage, breaks that bond, there is permission. Now in summary, Jesus and Moses permitted divorce if one party, like I said, is immoral, indecent, um, and, and it makes a mockery out of that marriage. And in such cases, there was no chance of repentance and change. Divorce is permitted. It's still a failure to the will of God. And so the divorced person, even if considered the innocent party, would have to own that failure, right? This is part of getting better before finding a new start with God's blessing. So... This is why Jesus explains that the repercussions are severe. Anybody who divorces his wife for any illegitimate reason and marries another commits adultery. In other words, the legitimate grounds for divorce would dissolve the marriage because the indecency has already occurred. But if the divorce is for other reasons, then the sexual union and the marriage is the indecency that destroys God's plan for the marriage. And so, again, the issue comes down to this exception clause. In a, in a world where oh, I just don't get along anymore, no, you've made a commitment. How can you work it through? If you have a spouse that's sitting here and elbowing you and saying, look, you need to get some counseling. And maybe you're totally committed to each other, but there's, your marriage is just rough and rocky and there's no, there's no outside sexual interference in your relationship. Then there's something that's going on. There's something that you need. You need therapy. You need counseling. You need help. You need to be sensitive to realize that God has put you together. I think that that's one of the things in our culture that we actually take away and separate, and we don't take it for granted that God has brought you together. Now, if you're married here and your spouse is sitting beside them, look at them in their eyes and say to one another, God has brought us together. 
Look in their eyes and say that. God has brought us together. And if there's tension in your relationship, and you can't look at your spouse and say that, then, then you need to start having some conversation. You need to start having some discussion. You need to maybe start walking with and, and getting some counseling or some therapy. Let's move on, because that was an awkward moment for some people. Then there's a response of the disciples. And, and of course, face value, their response is absolutely ludicrous. And basically what the disciples said, maybe it's better not to get married at all because it's so hard to get divorced. Jesus, you're making divorce so hard. Like, you know, the other guys made it easier. She messed up in dinner, I can get another one. It's just that easy. But Jesus, no, you're making it hard. You know, and it's quite possible that many people in the culture maybe thought it would be more appealing if, if it's easy, easier to get married, if it's easier to get divorced, right? Proverbs tells us, answer a fool according to his folly, the folly he deserves, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And that is what I think Jesus does. He tells them that what he is saying about marriage is intended for only those to whom it is given. Or put it otherwise, it only applies to those to whom it applies. If a person wishes to be celibate, then of course they don't need to pay attention to Jesus' words here. Uh, They are intended for those who wish to be married. Now not everybody can abstain from marriage, but some people do. And Jesus goes into detail denoting the groups of people who do not have to worry about his saying. The, uh, the eunuchs, um, those who were possibly born that way, those who were forcibly castrated, men who were forcibly castrated, which were usually court officials that were very close to the, the um, uh, royal harem. Probably a job I wouldn't want, but obviously somebody else signed up for it. And also, those who choose... So by choice, choose to be celibate. This is who Jesus is talking about. Those who make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God. So Jesus does not promote castration. I need to say that right now, all right? Not by any means because mutilation of the body was totally against Jewish law. But he was speaking of the renunciation of marriage for a higher purpose. The kingdom of God. In other words, when we read this passage of Scripture, sexual fulfillment in marriage is not the only option for life. Some folks in church think that a single person is not fulfilling the will of God, and that is actually very naive and simplistic thinking. Jesus and Paul, later on in 1 Corinthians, commend celibacy for the sake of the kingdom, not as a, a, a means to achieve the kingdom, but because of the claims and the interests of the king. The people make these choices for their reasons between them and God, and it's okay. Now, if people were able to devote full time to the kingdom of God, and they had the gift of celibacy, that's great. If they could not do it, well, then, of course, we hear this passage, well, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So not everybody could accept the position that it was better not to marry. Not everybody can do this celibate thing. So neither Jesus nor Paul see celibacy as a more holy condition in marriage, nor as a condition for the clergy, for the priests, right? Thank goodness. Um, It was a special calling for someone who were to serve different purposes in the kingdom than others. It's a special calling calling. It's a gift. Um, Purposes that did not include sexual gratification in marriage. If somebody has been given the gift and the calling of celibacy, then it should be accepted and the work of the kingdom should dominate their life and the rest of us should be cheering them on instead of always trying to set them up. And again, those who are celibate need not worry about the marriage rules. But the others, those those others who are in possession of their genitals, if I can put it that way, and wish to use them, must adhere to the saying. In short, Jesus is saying, if you have the plumbing and you intend to use it, you must follow the rules. Are you tracking with me? 
So in our culture, in, in, as a Christian life, there are a set of guidelines. There are, we don't like the word rules. Oh, it's all, religion is all about rules. No, Jesus lays it out very clearly. And so the concluding observations of this passage, it, we can see the issues that can never be set aside. So number one, most important thing is that marriage was ordained by God in creation. It was a union of one man, one woman, known as one flesh to produce godly seed. Malachi explains it. You can do your own research. God puts them together. And so no one can say, even in a happy marriage, that God did, unhappy marriage, sorry, that God did not put them together. That's what I've been trying to get at. I think that, that what God has put together, let man not separate. God put, you're married, God put your marriage together. You gotta be kidding, you could have done better, right? right? No, God put your marriage together. I think that's wonderful. And it's, you know, some of us in a happy marriage, unhappy marriage, sorry, can argue that God did not put us together, but that's a dodge for the real issue of what marriage and what the marriage union is all about. What God has joined together, no one must separate. Number two, divorce and remarriage were permitted in Israel by law, and that exception uh, to the preservation of the marriage was also accepted by Jesus. So this issue of marital infidelity, lewd, immoral behavior that ruined the marriage, that is grounds for divorce. But the divorce itself is not God-ordained. It's not a morally neutral act. It was the destruction of the plan of God. That's why it's so painful. And, and Summer's uh, request, uh, some commentaries say it's a rebellion against the word of the will of God, and a failure to for us to measure up to the divine standard. Now it may be the lesser of two two evils, but divorce may be necessary at times, but it's still consideration considered a violation of God's will, and therefore, no, it's wrong. We don't get married to get divorced. And of course, a related topic is what marriage involves and how many marriages have already gone through uh, maybe a psychological divorce, a separation. But that's a whole other issue that needs to be addressed in another life lesson. The third point is that any, if any divorce for illegitimate reasons, if, if anyone divorces for illegitimate reasons and remarries somebody else, then that new sexual union is the immoral act that dissolves the first one. So... If I get divorced and I get involved in somebody else, this person is set free. It dissolves it. However, I'm committing adultery in that process. And in some circles today, there are other grounds for divorce that are applicable. Most would say if there's any form of physical abuse and the husband is endangering the life of the woman, or in some cases the other way around, they at least should be separated. And if there's no change, there should be that option for divorce. Most would also include abandonment for grounds of divorce because of the problems it creates for the well-being of the family left uncared for. So there are other areas that we can take a look at and correspond and build up with Scripture. Now, the natural response to the strict ruling for marriage focuses on the difficulty of implementing it in a culture that allows divorce for any and every reason. And that's where we find ourselves today. You can get an easy divorce. Well, this is why we here at Seoul, we want to be able to, if you're going to get married, we highly endorse that you go through premarital. Some sort of premarital. I have told these stories over and over again where we've taken people through premarital and I've seen, I've seen ladies take off their wedding wings and whip them at their, their, their to-be husbands only to end up coming, like, because like, I saw it. I can't tell you not, well, I can suggest maybe you don't get married, but you're going to do what you want anyway. I've seen people get so mad and at, at the words that, that either I have said or other people in our premarital have said that there's tears, that there's fighting, that there's arguments, like I said, temporary breakups, full breakups, people never coming back, going out and getting married, writing letters years later saying, oh, now I see what you're getting at. Like marriage, is, it's not just a big party. It's something where God brings two people together, two people, very different backgrounds, 
And it's not easy, but it is beautiful. It is wonderful when it's working right, when there's honesty and integrity and love and generosity and openness. It is part of God's plan for some, not all. But we live in a culture now that says, look at it. I have irreconcilable differences. I don't like this. I feel tight. I feel controlled. I feel this. I feel that. And the believer should not fall into that trap. I think as believers, when we take a look and we should look at the scripture and we need to keep in mind the divine will of the creator in establishing what marriage was all about. Believers are to live above the curse We are to live about the world, the culture around us. We are to live above the sin and try to live life as God intended it to be. Never said it would be easy. As a matter of fact, Jesus said in this world you will have trouble. But marriage is and can be the most beautiful thing. Fifthly, celibacy is a gift. This is celibacy, not singleness. That's the difference what we're talking is. Some, even in the clergy, they remain single, but they don't remain celibate. Are you tracking with me? Those who are given this gift then remain single and they devote all their energy to the kingdom of God. They're not intrinsically more holy than those who marry and raise a family for the glory of God. No, they're just devoting themselves to God. They understand the gift they have. And uh, one would have to add that the Bible makes it clear that all sins can be forgiven as well. There has to be confession. There has to be repentance, which involves change if there's to be any reconciliation with God in our lives. And divorce should also be included in the things that need to be confessed when we come before our Creator in prayer. Because simply put, when we analyze the teachings of Jesus, that divorce is the violations of God's will. God put two people together. And I have to say this, that even an innocent party in a divorce, although not the one who, who, who has caused it necessarily, also needs to acknowledge participation in a failed marriage if there's going to be spiritual healing and going forth with God to better things. There's nothing wrong with saying that. There's nothing wrong with doing that. It's actually good therapy for us just to own these things, to deal with them. Why? So that we can find healing and then begin to start a new life with God's blessing. And I think that a person who has been stigmatized by divorce need not to live as a guilty sinner throughout life. Even though some churches might make them feel that way, and even to this day that still happens. Look at everyone in the church has been forgiven and has found new life by God's grace. And while the church must communicate forgiveness for all who truly confess, the church must also teach that the standard of God for marriage is high. It's a balance that the church has to have in all areas. And it's not easy. Um, it, It has to proclaim the truth of God's plan. This is the job of the preacher. Proclaim the truth of God's plan. But when people fail, it also has to proclaim forgiveness and reconciliation. After all, the church is about putting people's lives back together. Right, saints? Right, sinners? So then how do we live as a community with each other when people are walking through separation and then people are walking through divorce? I have to say first, the story is never simple. There are two people in the marriage. There are two stories. And if you get a brother-in-law, a co-worker, or parent involved, you now have 13 different stories. And you understand what I'm saying here. What happens then is all these stories come across our social feed. And what do you do? Are you the innocent bystander or do you take sides? Many times we feel that we're forced now to do what? We take sides, right? We have to choose, right, with the information that we have. And when getting divorced, many people never expected that their friends, hear me carefully, when getting divorced, many people never expected that their friends would choose a side and or a spouse. Are you with him or her? And, and from our perspective, 
for those not getting divorced, those on the outside looking in, we have this, I think I have to choose feeling. And sometimes we're forced that people are making us pick sides, but we don't want to. And I have to say that the story is rarely simple. And so my suggestion is that we are wise to refrain from quick, rapid judgment. We should refrain from rapid remarks, decisive condemnation about a particular relationship at all. There may be way more going on, and you may be looking at the relationship thinking that a person is out of line to leave that marriage and they're wrong and blah, blah, blah. But remember, you don't have all the pieces together. There may be a world of things going on in this relationship, one where the spouse may be involved in all sorts of darkness and destructive activity, and you may run in and say to the other spouse, how dare you leave, but that person has already made a decision not to go public, and, and with the other spouse's private sins, and so then that one spouse actually looks cruel and heartless for abandoning a relationship, but yet they might have been living in relational hell for years but you just didn't know that and and you never knew about it and they decided never to crucify their spouse in public you hear what I'm saying and here you are condemning the one spouse and you stepped in with the wrong words at the wrong time on the wrong side and you make the situation worse I think without any question that divorce is painful enough without the critique and condemnation of others. And if you feel the need to speak to a situation, you better ask for permission first. If your friends look at you and say, no, then respect their wishes and keep your opinions to yourself. But I want to pray more clearly. Shut up. But maybe you actually have earned the right to speak honestly. You still need permission. You still need permission. Don't charge into a scene. When you find yourself in the midst of divorce, ask yourself, have I heard from only one side? Have I heard any other perspective? And I think the reason is sometimes we have to hear the other perspective because sometimes we don't like hearing things about ourselves, even if it's true. Because we can actually be leaving out uh, uh, key concepts or information that would actually give us more of a full picture of what went wrong and what not to do again. Finally, somebody once said, marriage is the mingling of souls. If there's been a divorce, the soul is torn apart. Divorce is also the death of a marriage and it needs to be grieved like the loss of a friend or the loss of a companion. And Jesus' invitation to all of us is to go to the heart of the wound, name that pain, understand it, and seek to pull it apart and try to understand what all came together. If, if you're really serious about the sanctity of this bond, the sanctity of marriage, and you are fearful of divorce becoming too easily, especially in the church, then my words to you are this. Start in your own house. Start with your own spouse. Do that well. Do that well. In a community of trust, there needs to be freedom to, to call each other out. Dude, don't ever let me hear you talk about your wife like that. Come on. Do that. He's a good man. He may be a bit slow, right? But eventually he'll pick up his pants off the floor. It'll happen. But right now, treat him and love him as if he is everything you long for him to be. And when you treat him in that way, and you love him, you actually may start seeing changes that you're trying to accomplish him instead of riding him and berating him all the time. 
Our marriages are so important, people. Husbands, she's an amazing gift from God to you. I get an amen? I got an amen. <laughs> I'll drink to that too. All right. It's water. So then, treat her that way. Treat her that way. Watch your wedding video. I bet you cry. I bet you're right, because I married you. You bald and premarital. I'm telling you right now. <laughs> Remind yourself what you said. I will love you like Jesus loved the church, which means I will lay down your life for her, gentlemen. She's a precious thing. She's a sacred thing. And there's this idea out there uh, that, you know, we need to spill light on. Be a light, marriages. Reminds people of what God is like. The, the model it in our marriage. We need to trust that we will be met by grace and by God's grace. And today, maybe you've been in pain of, as I have talked. I want to encourage you to invite Jesus into your world. Maybe you're a student and you live through the pain of your parents' divorce. Maybe your divorce was long ago, but today, obviously, it brought up some painful memories. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're wondering, you know, gosh, I wish I would have, could have taken off earlier. Let me just say this. Jesus invites us to go into that pain and to be met in that pain by the Savior of the world who takes it and will heal you and give you a mind and an understanding to sort it out and to understand it to the best of your ability. Tim Keller says, God is trying to say to us all, I love redeeming the worst situations. I love redeeming the hardest cases. So go ahead and try me. Our relationships, maybe your relationship may be broken and perhaps maybe even dead. But we serve a God of the resurrection. And just as he overturned the curse of death, uh, of, of Jesus' death, he can overturn the curse of a broken marriage. The empty tomb is the answer for a soul broken by divorce. So go ahead, people, and try him. Open your broken heart to him and to see if he won't heal you. He hasn't changed. His cross still assures you of his endless compassion. And the empty tomb assures us of his endless power. So ask him where you need to forgive and where you need healing all at the same time. And maybe you're here today as a guest and now I've just raised a whole lot of questions regarding church and God and faith and stuff like that. Just simply take out your phone if you want. No, we're not playing Kahoot again, but just take out your phone. And I'm going to pray in just a few moments. And when I do, and you want us to follow up with you, you just text soul to the number on the screen. That's our pastoral care number. And we'll contact you personally. We want to pray with you. We want to answer your questions. If you need counseling, if you need therapy, we'll guide you in that process. But we want to care about your spiritual well-being and help you along in this journey called life. And I guarantee somebody will respond to you personally. Because God uses others to reach out to us and he's going to show up where you're at and he's going to use and do what he does when we are honest and open with him. Will you stand with me? Let's pray. And as I pray, if you want us to respond, you just text soul and we will be there for you. God, be with us as we talk. Be with those who have, have a long litany of emotions this morning. And I pray that you would speak to us about your peace. You have called us to live in peace. And as we think about the difficult decisions and process messages, guide us and direct us. Those who are divorced, may they move towards forgiveness, that every ex in our community would forgive their former spouse. That vows would be made never to speak evil of one another. And we pray for those whose marriages today that are barely hanging on. We ask for divine light to shine. Be the glue to bring people together, a renewed mingling of the souls. 
God, we do not advocate divorce, but do understand that it happens. And so we do pray for peace. We pray for healing. We pray for restoration. God, bless those families hurting with the pain of separation and divorce because we know that when two people are married, yes, it means for life. Yet at times when some people in some very complex situations, it just doesn't happen that way. So give peace and give courage to all who have experienced the disruption caused by divorce or separation. Help them to deal with any feelings of rejection, loneliness, and grief. Help them above all to believe in your presence and to believe in your word as a source of strength, as the source of compassion, the source of healing and restoration. And most of all, Lord, help all of us to be sensitive to emotional, spiritual, and physical needs of families around us that are touched this way. Enable us to reach out in love and care, especially, we pray, God, as we continue to recognize Jesus, even during such trying times as that. May we be filled with love, compassion, and understanding, I pray. Amen. In ancient times, the one who blessed extended his hands for the blessing. Those receiving the blessing did likewise. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you. Wherever he may send you, may he guide you through the wilderness. May he protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he's shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Now go and live the church. We'll see you next week.